his life in service. And in addition to that, sadness solves conflict, if you will, is also there. There are no other viable contenders for the throne of all of Israel that are left, except for the weak equal judge of God himself. And also the equally weak, or possibly even weaker, Mephibosheth, who's a son of God. Those are the only two really that are left in the text. Since all of the formidable characters or challenges to David's path to kingship over the entire nation of Israel are now gone, it's probable that it's at this point that David wrote Psalm 18, the song that we studied last week. That's an incredibly powerful, passionate song. You can't be sure of that today. The song's not David. But this is the period of life when David's existence was, appears to best fit the data with certainly the truthful descriptions of the psalm this week are good. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Interestingly, if you read ahead, you know that this psalm is repeated almost word for word at the end of 2 Samuel in chapter 22. We'll consider when we get to chapter 22 why that's done, why it's repeated. But for now, we just need to acknowledge that things seem to be going quite nicely for David. He's at a high point in his life. It should go without saying that Jonathan was never a threat to David in terms of defense. Jonathan was David's best friend. Jonathan loved David, and Jonathan had already signed off on the fact that he would not be king, but that David would be king. So when we say that all of David's enemies are dead, we don't count Jonathan in there. And I've mentioned Jonathan before, we just think he was one of the ones who would have been in line. So there's nobody left that would be in line for the throne except for these two weak individuals. Been confronted with the scriptural, spiritual principle that a right thing must be done in the right way to qualify as something lucky in God's plan. When Joab killed Abner, it could possibly be argued that Joab was seeking justice. It could possibly be argued that, that Joab was just trying to protect King David. From Abner and his team. But even if we grant that, he killed Abner without any kind of authorization from David, even against the wishes of David. So we concluded that Joab was wrong in what he did. Even if we argue that he may have done a right thing, and that may be no point. But even if we argued that the killing of Abner needed to be done, he had no authorization to do that. So it was a moral choice, not a legal execution. Joab was wrong, and his hatred of Abner went to him. We saw in Psalm 18 the comparison and the contrast. Psalm 18 that we started in 2 Samuel. David allowed the Lord to take vengeance. Joab did not. He did not allow for the Lord to do that. And that's the second point. David said he touched again in chapter 4 with respect to this whole principle. The principle that a right thing must be done in the right way in order to be a king. 
what is he going to do in corporate the current king of Israel in respect to Judah? What's he going to do with them? Remember, the overriding thing for these two chapters is that we're most often vulnerable to be seized by that, but they could take. We will have to say David's in a period of time in his life where he had victory. All of his enemies are in Bible. Except that he's seeing people with a first hand and you can sort of challenge them. But he's on a high right now. So there's this nagging little thing that's left over that he's supposed to what he's going to do. Adam makes it, and he's supposed to have a power arrow. But what's he going to do with these people? The idea that we're most vulnerable to be seeing right after some sort of spiritual victory is true in the spiritual life. It's also true in the secular life. You see, in athletics, for many times, we find an athletic team, baseball team, football team, or even an individual team, that lose to a lesser opponent the very week after they have had a great victory over a greater opponent. That happens all the time in sports. We call those letdown games. Some even even talk about guarding against the letdown. That someone's had a great victory. They're on top of the world. And then some team that should never be able to knock them off. Them off because their eye is not on the ball anymore. They're looking back in the review mirror at the victory they just had, and when you if you drop a ball and have it go freeway, and if all you do is you're looking in the rearview mirror, chances are pretty big that you're going to crash that car and collide with the car in front of you. It's okay to look in the rearview mirror occasionally. It's letdown. You see, who's behind? You see what I just called letdown. But there'll be plenty of times we're looking in the rearview mirror in eternity. In eternity, everything's going to be in the rearview mirror. Right now, we need to focus on what's ahead, on the next part, on the next spiritual battle. We need to guard against spiritual letdowns, just like football teams need to guard against athletic letdowns. David's in an interesting spot. Two chapters here. His enemies are all attacking him. His enemies this week weak and sinful. The question is, for him, is he going to continue to do a right thing in a right way? Or even after he's had this great victory, he's trying to do a right thing in a right way for a 10-year period. From the time he's about 20 to the time he's 30. He's been doing a right thing in a right way for most of the time with one big exception. Guess what? It's going to come up in our passage again tomorrow. You know what that exception is, but for the most part, he does the right thing in the right way. The passage is Romans, and he's got every opportunity to kill Saul, and he won't do it because it's not God's will. Are you convinced of that? But okay, David's vulnerable right now. It would have been very easy for him to fall off the wagon and just to do something that's expedient to get this thing all over with. So let's see what happens. Is David going to do a right thing in the right way? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, is foremost. And upon learning of the death of Abner, Ephrosheth was scared to death. It's not so much that he was counting on Abner for protection, he was all Abner wanted to be crazy. Actually, what Ephrosheth must have been thinking was what? If David and his people will kill Abner, the strong man Abner, the head of my army, what's going to happen to me? I don't stand a chance. What chance do I have to live if he's going to kill Abner? Well, half the world is going to kill Abner. So verses 1 and 2, they read this way. Now when Ephrosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in heaven, 
he walked through it. And all he did was stare. Because Sodom had two men who were commanders of banks. The name of one was Sodom, the name of the other was Bethel. Sons of Rimon, the Bethel. Of the sons of Benjamin, Bethel was also considered son of Benjamin. I think the reason that particular parenthetical statement is there is because the sons of Benjamin were always considered to be somebody better warriors than Israel. All throughout Israel's history, people who had the commandment among the better warriors. Israel's telling us that these are two formidable people in terms of the warrior class. The head warrior of them all, Abner Jeremy. These are the two people that probably think they're next in line. In reality, Israel stepped shoes were probably unlikely. Some of that was rarely brought up the idea that people just didn't understand it. They just didn't get it. Unspiritual people rarely understand people who are walking the path of faith. This is another case of someone who just really doesn't understand it. He shares this life, but what I don't think he realizes is that David really has been a peacemaker. I don't understand him at But David is not really known for killing helpless Greek people. David is known for killing warriors of the other army. He is known for killing people who he thinks have done dastardly evil deeds against God's will. But had he known David to really go after someone he feared up to this point? He really hasn't. Israel just doesn't understand it. I don't think he really has anything to fear from David because he was no real threat to David. But once again, we're going to find less righteous men taking matters into their own hands. Before we get to that story, there was one parenthetical verse that is not an insignificant verse because it's going to introduce somebody to us that's going to come up again in chapter 9. The text just tells us about him now. Now, Jonathan, Jonathan had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Josiah, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in a hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And I don't think of this verse as a parenthesis. It's just introducing us to one of two major descendants of Saul that are still alive. This would have been his grandson, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. He was a little boy at this point in time. He certainly knows what's David, and on top of the fact that he's still a fairly young man, he's only five or ten years old now. But he's crippled on top of it. He has no physical ability to keep David going. So all he did is he takes that information about Mephibosheth and goes set it aside for a little while because maybe David has made a promise to Jonathan. If something happens to me, will you take care of my family? Remember, because when that comes up, David's going to take care of Mephibosheth. That's the end of the parenthesis. Now we're back to these two evil guys that are going to take matters into their own hands. Look at verses 5 through 7. This is where the murder of Ishbosheth is recorded. So the sons of Ramon, the Berethites, went down in Benai, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. And they came to the middle of the house as if to get heat, and they stuck him in the belly, and the child and Benai, his brother, escaped. In the architecture of the ancient world, houses typically were built around the courtyard. It was really where the breezes could flow through, and people spent a lot of time in the middle courtyard. It looks like 
resource grab was taken or not, somewhere in that little courtyard to where he could get a little breeze on him, perhaps. That also is where different materials were stored. So these two fellows come in, they're no resource grab. They're going to the entrance to the house, and the house is probably not very large. The house is like one of the houses that's large, like the one where that people came. They're going under that precinct and they're killing them. So it's kind of actually goes back in time. The first two verses five and six are a summary of what happened. They sleep in and they fall asleep in this and they're fighting the going and killing their escape. Now verse seven tells a little bit more about what happened. Verse seven is graphic. Almost all rated. When they came into the house, as he was lying in the bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Aladon all night. So now you see what's happening. There's nothing honorable about this at all. They haven't been authorized by any Jewish court or even the king to do this. This is simply a murder. And we're going to see that these fellows murder each person for political reasons, thinking that they're going to get some sort of favor from King David because they've murdered King David as a king. You can almost put the text down and get what's going to happen. Because you've seen it happen before. I don't know how, but how many people think David's going to be grateful to these two fellows? I didn't think so. You know David. You know David better than these two fellows know David. You see the point? Because you know something of God as well. You know something of justice. Equal justice didn't affect David. Because if equal justice saw in an acquisition, he might have David. But he wasn't strong. He superimposed his feelings upon David. He didn't understand David. These two fellows are doing the same thing. They take the head of David's enemy, and they're going to bring the head of David's enemy to David, and they think they're going to be rewarded. Well, let's look and see what David's response was. Verse 8, they brought the head of Ephraim to David in heaven, and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ephraim, the son of Saul, your enemy. He took your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, Vengeance on this day, on Saul and his descendants. Did David want vengeance on Saul and his descendants? No. He's never said that he wanted vengeance. He wanted what the Lord's will was for his life. These guys made a terrible mistake. There are people that don't understand you either. They have no idea why you decide to come to church on a week and not to spend your time praying. Why are you planning your vacations around different church activities? Why do you spend time getting up early in the morning? And reading your Bible, or going to a prayer meeting on Saturday when you could have slept in, or going to church on a Sunday night when there's a big game that you'd like to watch. They don't get it. They don't understand you. When you're in good company, it's difficult for people that don't share the same love of Jesus Christ that you have to understand you. This is not talking about where people become angry or bitter in any way. You just need to understand that's the way it is. These two guys are just two more people who won't understand David. Well, let's look and see what David's response is. And David answered Uzzah and Banner and his brother, sons of Reuben and the Bethlehem, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag. He didn't actually do it himself, but he had his men do it, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more will wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own bed? Shall I now require his blood from your hands and destroy you from the earth? Then says, Now, before Esau sent the righteous men, 
in heaven for one, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame shall turn your life thinking David can't get in here. They're thinking that there's no way David can defeat this thing. He's extremely well done. The idea that this is possible with the blind and lame will turn him away. This is pre-battle verbal prophecy. This is ancient, thousand, one thousand BC prophecy called the Lord Army Survey. What they're really doing is they're, they're claiming that even disabled people could hold off David. That's how much of a stronghold we have here in what was part of the southeast area of what is now Jerusalem. David was told that all the Gentiles were born men. In other words, verse 7, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Gentiles, let him reach the lame and the blind. And David's actually tried something back. Who are hated by David's souls through the water coming. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come in here. Many of you have been in
backward unity that Ireland received coincided only with the last nine years of David's life and the first 24 years of Solomon's reign. Why would that be significant? Sometimes things are significant. Even if you didn't follow the specifics, let me tell you this. This episode that is mentioned in verses 11 and 12 happens much later in David's life. It's inserted here in summary purposes showing that David was prostrate. But it helps us to see that David built his own tower later in his life. David's not the kind of fellow that as soon as he became king, he said, okay, now you all bow down to me, bring your tower to me, I'm going to build me a big tower. That's not what David does. It might look like it if you don't know some of the historical intricacies here, but it's a little bit later. In fact, it's significantly later before David would build the tower. It's not something that he immediately does after the fact. It's in verse 12 that we read a moment ago. One scholar wrote about verse 12 these words. Verse 12 is the key to understanding why David prospered as Israel's king. David realized that Yahweh was Israel's real father. Saul was never willing to acknowledge this fact. He saw himself as the ultimate authority in Israel. In contrast, David regarded his own kingship as a gift from God. He realized, too, that God had placed him on the throne for the Israelites' welfare, not for his own personal glory. This is where Saul failed. David had a proper view of his role in Israel. He had had it properly. Now, sometimes I call that saying, David needs what he needs. He knew why he was prospering and what was his For the most part, David passes the prosperity test. 